Good morning. Um, today's scripture is from Matthew 18, 1 through 9. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. All right. Thank you, Heather. Okay, good morning, everybody. Are we good? Okay, we have a very large passage today, again, and um, normally this passage is, is, is read, it is used as, it's kind of, the first half has kind of a cutesy vibe, right? It's like, it's like become like a child, and what do children do? Well, they're smiling, and they're happy, and, and they're trusting, and all that, they got their hands up like this, they just want to be loved, and just become like a child. Um, I love, I love all that. I'm probably going to break it all this morning um, and, and maybe give you something a little different uh, to, to look at this passage with because there's a lot of little pieces and a lot of little um, sort of lenses that we have lost over the last 2,000 years and, um, and that's kind of what I do as, as I try to give you back those lenses so that you can read the scriptures and, and understand it a lot more similarly to how the first century readers would have read it. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of little pieces that I'm going to try to give you this morning that will help this um, sort of maybe, honestly, come alive. And I think passages like this have the power to reshape entire communities if you fully grasp what is going on. So we're going to try to do that by the end of uh, this morning. So let's pray, and then we're going to jump in and start at uh, chapter 18, verse 1. So let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for this place. Thank you for everyone in this room. Thank you for the community that we share. Thank you for the, uh, the growth that, that our people individually are experiencing. Um, thank you for the hope that we have that comes from you, not from any external circumstances or sources. And I, I ask that you would um, this morning give us, um, give us knowledge and understanding, grant us wisdom uh, to to take all these things that we learn and, and apply them to our everyday world. Help us to see the lives that these people were living. Um, help us to compare them with our own lives and, and, and to see our similarities and our differences and the places where we need to align more and more with the teachings of Christ. And may we leave this morning differently than we came in. May we have different eyes from which to look at the world. Um, reveal our blind spots. Reveal the places that we have... Uh, kept closed off to those around us. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's apparently a conversation happening. We don't know what it is. Matthew has not made us privy to that conversation. But it has to do with position, status, honor. Um, People today don't realize the immense importance that the early, the early, um, the first century um, citizens in the, in the Roman Empire and in the, in the first century world, people don't understand the immense importance that they placed on honor and status, on uh, not being shamed, on maintaining that honor. And um, it, was, it was incredibly important. It determined the amount of status that you had in the community. If you were of high class or low class, that stuff determined um, how much money you would make. It often determined how long you would live. It determined how you would be treated by those above you. If you were below a certain status, um, a Roman soldier at any point could get off his horse, take the pack, punch you in the face, give you the, the pack that was on his horse and say, walk for a mile with my pack. My horse is tired. Um, there were all kinds of ways in which this, this affected your life. It determined where you could sit at a table, what table you could sit at, what buildings you could go into, what parts of town you were welcome in. Um, status was incredibly important. It was gained through um, kissing up to people above you. It was gained through having exceptional skills. Um, and it was something everybody was grasping for and everybody wanted. It is perfectly in place in the first century to see people squabbling over power. It is a very normal thing that people would squabble over. Um, And so what we have here is the disciples coming to Jesus after a conversation that we don't know about um, and saying, hey, Jesus, in your kingdom, when you set this thing up, they're, they're still thinking in terms of like Roman Empire. When you set up this kingdom, when we overthrow the Roman Empire, when you become king and you're living in the palace and you're controlling the armies and you're making all the laws, who in your kingdom is going to be at the top rungs of society? Which of us is going to sit in the positions of, of power? Is it Peter because he's the oldest? Is it, uh, is it John because he's the disciple that you love? Uh, who is it? Who is it going to be? Um, and, and this is the conversation that they were having. So um, there's a few things you need to understand before we really launch into this passage. I'm going to give you three phrases that you have probably seen all through the New Testament and I want, I want you to have a scope of, of what exactly they mean and, and how the people understood them. So first off, there's this phrase that is all through the New Testament called be humble. So what it means to be humble, oftentimes we think to be humble just means to like not boast about yourself. It means to, in the modern day, it just means like don't, don't, don't be a braggart. Don't, uh, none of that. Just be quiet and, you know, um, prove to them who you are through your actions. And this is the modern sort of idea of humility. Um, and, and some of that is carried in the Old Testament. However, in the New Testament, in the first century, first all the way up to the third century, this word had particular meaning. To be humble meant to stay within one's inherited social status. It literally had that meaning. Um, in other words, um, to be humble meant not to grasp at upgrading yourself, um, to accept where you are, the social status, who is above you, who is below you, and accept it and embrace it and be that. Um, and if it meant, if you were ever offered a position to move up in the social status, up the social ladder, if that meant that somebody else would lose their position, then you would reject it in the Jewish world. This was, a, um, this was part of being a good, holy um, Jewish man or woman. Was if somebody, if you were being offered, if you had a chance to climb the social ladder, but somebody else, it meant somebody else didn't get to sit at that table then you wouldn't take it. 
as a sort of a symbol of your obedience to God, okay? So this is what it means to be humble. Remain where you are and find joy and contentment in that. Um, To become humble is actually something different. To become humble means to yield your status to another, um, to raise somebody else up by offering them your seat at the table, or to humble yourself, to liken yourself to people below you. Um, So a good way to describe this is, let's pretend you're at a fancy dinner party and you had to wear, um, let's say like you're a guy and you had to wear a tuxedo, and it just happens that the tuxedo that you're wearing matches the tuxedos that like the people with the trays and the hors d'oeuvres are wearing. And you just happen to match them. Wasn't planned. Um, however, there are other people. Um, there's like a guy who's like extra. He's got a tuxedo with like a hat and like tails, right? Um, and that guy um, sees you wearing the same tux as these other people. And you are equal with him in this party, soiree. I think they call them these days. Um, and you are there with this guy. And this guy turns to you and says, get me some shrimp. And you look at yourself and you look at them. And, oh, he thinks I'm a waiter. And it's looking at him going, I'll be right back. And you walk into the kitchen, where's the shrimp? And you grab a tray, shrimp with bacon, wrapped with more bacon and gouda and more bacon. And you put it on there and you bring it over and you go, here you go, sir. And he takes it and he goes, thank you, sir. Some white wine when you get a chance. You're like, okay. And you just become one of these other waiters. Um, instead of telling this guy, I'm not one of them. How, why would you talk to me? It's allowing yourself to be talked down to in this way um, and taking the position of a servant. Um, and so that is sort of what this means. It's, it's a lowering of your, to become humble is to lower your own social status in some way. To cede one's inherited social status to another uh, and to bear the treatment in, inappropriate or undeserving of one's inherited status. And then there's one more phrase, um, to welcome um, has a specific meaning in the first century as well. To welcome means to show hospitality to someone, um, to bring them in at night, maybe uh, to give them a place to stay, to feed them. Now, in the ancient world, even in the Old Testament um, times, there was, there was a code of hospitality that all people shared, everyone of every tribe, every tongue. Um, and they had to, because in the ancient world, it was dangerous to travel, it was dangerous to live, it was dangerous to leave your village and go somewhere else. And so if somebody was out after dark, they would basically, if you went to a town, you would go to the town square. And if you saw somebody in the town square and you were the first one to see them, you would look at them and by the codes of the day, the moral codes, you would look at them and you'd say, Come to my house. Come to my house. And, and you would maybe slaughter a, a lamb or pig for them or whatever. And you would cook them their food and you would give them a place to stay. Even if it was your own bed and you would sleep maybe on your roof of your own, be- of your own house. Um, even if they were your enemy. Even if they were a member of the army that slaughtered your family in a previous war. Or if they were going to do that in two weeks. If your people were going to go to war. You would still take them in and watch over them. Um, this was the ancient... Um, just practice of, of hospitality. Um, and in the morning, either you would separate as friends or you would still remain enemies. If you were friends, you would kind of shake hands, look each other in the eye, bless each other's houses and move on. Um, otherwise, you would shake the dust off your feet. You'll see this several times referenced in the New Testament. You would shake the dust off your feet and you would move on. In other words, you're saying nothing has changed between us. Nothing. So um, these phrases are really important to understand in this passage and as we move into other passages as well. And I want you honestly to think of all the times where it, it talks about in the New Testament of Jesus humbling himself to the point of a servant. To, of a servant. Um, when it talks about Jesus putting, taking the towel, wrapping it around his waist and washing his disciples' feet. This is Jesus lowering his social status in the world. This is an unheard of thing, the way that Jesus was doing it. Um, so, um, and here's the thing. The reason this conversation was happening is because kingdoms 
have hierarchies. They always do. There is someone that you want to be. Every kingdom in the world, there's someone that you want to be, and there's someone you want to avoid being. Okay? You, you want to move this way, and you want to move away from this direction. And the farther you kind of push yourself back from these people, um, the more you become like these people. Okay? Every kingdom of the world is just like this. They all have an elite and a lowly. There's some who run the show, and there's some who serve the show. This is how the world works. Um, They all have something you want to be and something that you want to avoid becoming. So this is the conversation that is happening. Um, What is going to be our place in this kingdom? Surely we have known you and served you. We're going to have a higher social status, right? So let's move on a little farther. So now it's talking about Jesus' response. It says, he called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So, um, before we talk about the meaning of this passage and what he is doing here, you have to understand some things about children in the first century. Um, Modern day, we talk about becoming childlike. We think it's this beautiful thing, okay? We, we talk about it like, because children are free and they're not embarrassed and, and they can just run around naked and just not care who, what they look like or whatever. And they, um, they'll say exactly what's on their mind and wildly embarrass you in public spaces. And they will just, um, you want to be like a child and we all want this childlikeness. We want to go back to our youth. We want to grasp it and gain it again. It was not like this in the first century, especially in the Roman Empire. Um, children in the Roman Empire were considered half human. It wasn't until you reached the age of, of puberty that you would finally be considered a full adult. Um, nowadays, we wait till like late 20s, early 30s, right? <laughs> Prolong adolescence as far as we possibly can. In their day, it was like, it was, if you were of childbearing age, you were an adult, okay? You earned your adulthood. Um, but before that, you had nothing. You had no rights People wouldn't even call you by your name. Infant mortality was, was really high, the rate of infant mortality. They wouldn't even call you by your name. Um, you had no protection under the law. Uh, your parents could legally sell you to another family. They could kill you at any time they wanted to. Um, they could beat you, throw you in prison, sell you into slavery, make you their own slave. They could do whatever they wanted. You literally had no rights as a child. Um, if you were a baby... Babies had it far worse than children who were older than them. Um, babies upon being born. This is a, um, a first century relief uh, carving of, a, of what's called an exposed baby. Um, babies were exposed. But what this means is like if they were born and the parents decided by looking at them for some reason they didn't want them, they could just expose them, like put them out in the elements. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the city of Rome, the forum, the Roman forum was where you would abandon babies. And you would go down there and in the evening you would go down there, there would be babies abandoned in the forum there um, that people just decided, I don't want. Maybe, maybe they had infirmities. Maybe they wanted a boy. Whatever they wanted, they could just abandon them. And if you walked in and you saw a baby and you picked it up, that baby just became your baby. And you had to raise this baby and take care of it. Um, and the Christians were well known for every single day going in to the forum and rescuing these children and taking them home and raising them as their own because they were adopted by God and so they adopted these children. It was a huge part of the the early Christian life um, to rescue these children. And in fact, this is one of the ways that the early church grew rapidly by rescuing these unwanted children and making them children of God and giving them an identity and a name and a purpose um, and educating them. And so these babies would be abandoned. Now, um, 
a baby who was a, a little girl would have it even far worse. So it gets worse and worse. Um, if you were a little girl, you were... Um, you tended to be more expensive uh, to raise in that day. There was different things you had to take care of and buy, and, and you couldn't make money, and so um, you couldn't provide anything for the family. Um, and you couldn't provide, and uh, you couldn't provide an heir for the family. That would be whoever you married. It would be their family's heir, and so you couldn't be any kind of like insurance policy for later on in life, retirement policy or anything. So if you didn't have the money to raise a girl, you would abandon and expose the girl, just abandon her there. Um, if your child was born um, handicapped in any way, deformed, blind, even half-blind, crippled in any way at all, um, it would be even worse. Um, if you read the writings of people like Seneca, a philosopher from the first century, he says, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into a sickly cattle lest they taint the herd, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. It's just flippant. Like, we don't care about these deformed children. They're unwanted, we don't want them. This is what it meant to be born into this world. This is, this, this is how children were treated. Oftentimes, um, the little girls who were abandoned were picked up by slave traders who would raise them in to, in, 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 in to, to serve the brothels of Rome, of which there were thousands of them, um, sold into sex trade. Um, the boys would be sold off into slavery. And one of, the, one of the big travesties of slavery in that day, amongst all the travesties that they suffered, one of the most painful ones was that they were never, no matter how old a slave became, they were never considered an adult. They were always considered a, a child, and so you could have a 50-year-old slave and a 22-year-old owner, and the owner would refer to the slave as a, as a pice. It's a, it's a Greek word for boy. Um, and he would call this older man, just call him a boy, serve me. And this is how they would talk to them. By the way, um, American chattel slavery, um, a lot of aspects of it, including this aspect, was fashioned after Roman slavery. Um, and so in American slavery... Um, you, they never retained, they never received their rights that everyone else received, and they would always be talk, spoken to as if they were a child. And so a, an owner would always call a slave boy, which, by the way, if you're uninformed about this, this is why it is wildly offensive to refer to any African-American man as, as, as a boy, because it is hearkening back to this time when they were not viewed as fully human, only half human. And that goes back straight back to the Roman Empire. This is where that came from. And so this is, when Jesus says this, you guys are arguing over who is the highest in the land, who is going to have positions of authority and social status. And Jesus does the most shocking thing you can imagine. Therefore, whoever, he takes this little girl, sets this little girl in the midst of these, of these boys. All, all of the disciples were likely um, just past the age of puberty. Uh, Peter was the oldest, maybe 14, 15. The rest of them were like 13, 14, 12, even maybe. Um, and Jesus sets this little girl. Um, um, N.T. Wright argues from the text, from the Greek, that it is a girl that Jesus, that Jesus is, is holding here and placing. So all these 12 considered men standing around, pretty tall, and, and, and Jesus takes this little girl and places her in the midst of them. It says he placed her in the midst of them, and they're all looking down at her. This, this in, their, in, their, in their culture, this nothing, who doesn't even have legal rights, can't do anything for herself. He says, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes such, one such child in my name welcomes me. 
He says, you're going to stand around and you're going to argue about social status and class. Um, that is not how the kingdom of God is going to work. So Jesus is calling them to humble themselves and become like her. And remember that this is not humility in our modern sense of quiet bashfulness. This is not even retaining where they are in society. This is literally Jesus saying, um, Jesus speaking of all the children there and, and, and saying, take the socioeconomic and honorless status of this little girl and you will be the greatest in my kingdom. Imagine that the hush and the silence that came over them. This hits them a lot differently than it hits you and I in modern day. Um, This is an incredibly weighty phrase. It's a stunning statement that was the opposite of every rabbi in their day. In their day, um, rabbis would teach their students, you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Here's how you're great in the kingdom of God. Follow me, follow this rabbi, follow that rabbi, follow great people. Surround yourself with people who are great. We still kind of do this today. We say you become the average of the five people you spend your most time with. And so naturally, we all start thinking, oh, I better choose to spend some time with some really great people so I can become like them. Nobody, upon hearing that you become like the five people that you spend the most time with, none of us say, well, I need to spend some more time with some homeless people then. We don't do it. Why? Because we don't want to become like them. Why? It's all tangible. It is money. And it's... it's um, it's, it's not about the heart. It's not about maybe their relationships honestly are far greater than yours. Maybe there are things that you can learn. Maybe the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God needs is for you to liken yourself to people who are of lower earthly status than you so that you can pour into each other. Um, and, and, and then Jesus here, um, if, you, if you fast forward to verse, t- uh, verse 10, it's not in our passage today, it's in next week's chapter, but it says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. He says, never despise these little ones. And he's not, at this point, he's not just talking about children. He's talking about people of lower status. He's talking about people who who are considered nobodies, the outcasts, those who can just be slaughtered and killed and thrown around and sold and what, however you want to treat them and nobody cares about them or how you treat them. And Jesus says, no, no, never look down upon these people, ever. That is not how the kingdom of God is going to function. And then we go a little farther here. It says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So we just went from like zero to 60, okay? We just went from, don't treat people like that. Matter of fact, if you do, it's better if you're drowned in the ocean. It's better if you were murdered. Now, um, there's a lot of meaning in this. Um, First, I want you to ponder this. So this is how children in the first century were treated and looked at. I want you to call to mind every passage that you have on, on us being described as the children of God. And the picture now that comes to mind, because God tells us, you are my children, I will never leave you or forsake you. Um, he says, let the little children come to me. He, he, talks about, um, he talks about children being the heirs to the throne. And all the riches and the glory of God are now bestowed upon the children of God. The way Jesus is talking about children, those with no rights, no identity, not even considered human in that, fully human in that day. The way Jesus talks about 
us as his children and then redefines how children should be, should be treated in this world um, was likely incredibly offensive to everyone around them. And they just wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't grasp it. He is challenging the entire system, taking this whole thing and turning it upside down, forcing them to ask a lot of questions about how they treat the people around them. So we come to this passage and he says, as a matter of fact, if you treat people this way, here's what should happen to you. So let's define some of these terms here. Uh, It starts off, uh, if any one of you causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large... So let's talk about the stumble part for a minute. The, The part about causing someone to stumble comes from Leviticus chapter 19. Verse 14, Um, it is in a collection of laws that the Jewish people called the Torah. Now, the Torah, that's a word that we translate as law, but in the ancient Hebrew, it has a it has a meaning. It basically the word Torah means it means like a finger pointing. That's what it means. There's a direction that we are supposed to go. And so these laws weren't just laws to take and follow. They had a deeper meaning, every single one of them was there for a reason. It was pointing to the way that human beings were were created to live. So you'll see passages like Psalm chapter 1 verse 2 where it says, um, um, the wise that are seeking godly counsel will meditate on the laws of God day and night. Now, if I were to sit and meditate upon the laws of America and I were to sit like, you just pick a random topic, the driving laws. I could sit and ponder the driving laws. I meditate and say, yes, we stop at stop signs. We always yield to the person to the right of us. They go first. Uh, um, I, when you see yellow, you don't hit the gas. You hit the brakes and you slow down a little bit so that when the red comes, you are there. And, and, and pondering doesn't make any sense. We don't ponder the meaning behind these laws, okay? However, the Jewish people viewed the law as it has this greater meaning and it's always pointing to something different. And so Leviticus 9, uh, chapter 19, verse 11, is, uh, this text specifically refers to how it is against the law of God. It breaks the law of God to put a stumbling block in front of a blind person. And we look and we think, what kind of jerk would do that? <laughs> now, it's not just referring to words that are used there, not just referring to a blind person. It's also referring to um, handicapped people, anyone trying to get somewhere where it is already difficult for them to get there. And then you do something to block them, cut a tree down in their path so they can't get where they're going. And then you can run ahead of them because you have the ability to do so and they do not. And it's any way that you would stop someone from moving to A to B when they have a harder time getting there. And it comes right before um, the laws that are about showing, that are against you showing favor to those whom you consider great. So, these laws, this entire chapter is about, uh, of Leviticus, it's about how you treat people. And it says, don't make it harder for those who have less than you. Don't make it easier for those who have more than you so that you can climb the social ladder. These are things that God detests. These are the things that God hates and wants his people to never take part in. Stopping people from progressing in their life. Holding them back, putting a stumbling block before them. Now, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, twice Isaiah, three times Ezekiel, use this passage and expound upon it as if they had been meditating upon it and come to bigger, deeper meaning. And they start talking, using this phrase, stumbling block, as anything that keeps people from becoming more, um, more entwined in the kingdom of God, more entwined in the community of God. Um, there's some people that, yes, you want to kick out of the community. You just don't like them. You don't like their status. You don't like their nationality. You don't like that they're there. Um, um, you don't think they have the same status as you. And so you take part in something that causes them to stumble and not progress in the kingdom. And maybe even something that makes them unclean. You teach them a thing that, makes, that perverts sort of their view of the scriptures and makes them unclean so they are pushed out of community. All of this is detestable to God. And Isaiah 
is constantly going on about how dare you make someone else stumble. You should be lining the path for them. The Torah is regularly talked about as a path, a road, um, a way of moving. And Deuteronomy commands us, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. And then there are these people who don't want you to progress, who are stopping you every step of the way. It's strictly forbidden in the scriptures, um, especially for the Jewish people. So Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, that's what he's talking about. You're making it harder for them when it is already harder for them. Keeping them in their position when you could be helping them to grow, it could be helping them to find health and peace and goodness and a place in the community and you refuse to do so. Okay? Now, what happens? Okay, so it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and they'd be drowned in the depths of the sea. So let's talk about drowning in the sea. This was a form of Roman execution um, that they would take people out into the sea and they would tie heavy things to them and throw them in the water straight down. Um, the Jewish people... If you've been here long enough, you've heard this several times. The Jewish people had a very troubled relationship with the sea, with water in general. They were, a, they were not a seafaring people. They were semi-nomadic, agricultural, farming people. Um, they had specific beliefs about the ocean that had risen up during the intertestamental period between the New, Old Testament and the New Testament, where they, came, they began to believe that like, the sea, especially salty seas, is where the abyss was. It is where all evil came from, demons and all this, live down in there, okay? And you'll see this reflected all through the writings of Leviathan coming out of the sea and, and, and uh, crazy creatures in Revelation. Jesus, they think he's a ghost because he's on the water. All kinds of stuff, right? Um, and so, um, this is actually something that they went to the Roman Empire when they negotiated their land settlement to live there in, in retain the area of Judah. They went to Rome and they said, We'll, we'll work with you. We'll make sure our people don't riot and try to overthrow your government. However, there's a few things we need from you. And one of those things was, we need you to stop using uh, drowning as a method of execution of the Jewish people. And so they didn't. Okay? Because it was, it was the worst way you could imagine dying. Being thrown into the abyss of hell. That's what that, they were terrified of that. Second, um, Jesus says... Um, he says, and in doing so, having a millstone tied around your neck. Now, um, the word for um, millstone is this word moulos. It's a Greek word. Everyone say moulos. Well done. Okay. You sound, you sound a little bored. We'll get there. We'll wake you up. Um, this is a moulos. It's a small one that, that uh, women were the ones who grinded the flour in that day. And, and, and so they would have this little thing and they would pull the top off, drop it in there and go like this and grind out the grain. Now, this is a moulos. The word that is used in this passage um, is not just moulos, it is moulos onikos. Onikos is the word for donkey. Um, it is talking about one of these millstones, okay? This is one perfectly preserved under the ashes of Pompeii when it erupted and covered the Roman city. Um, these are mills that were so big that it took a donkey to walk around them, uh, a big stick through them, a big, a big beam, and they would walk around and they would grind all the mill stuff would be dropping in the top. So here's what Jesus is describing. Take one of these, put it over somebody's head all the way up to their neck, toss them in the middle of the sea, straight down to the abyss of hell. Okay? And that will, that will be referenced later, being thrown into hell. That will be referenced later. Um, Jesus is using a bit of hyperbole, in case you didn't notice. He's saying, what is, what is the worst thing you can imagine happening to you? What is the worst thing you can imagine doing to someone else? What is it? Oh, man, like having a millstone, being stuffed in a millstone and then thrown in the bottom of the sea, 
It's like a game that kids would play. What's, what's worse than worse? What's grosser than gross? Like, this is, this is the worst thing you can imagine. And so Jesus mentions the worst thing you can imagine happening to somebody. And it's as if Jesus says, I know something far worse. Far worse. Abusing vulnerable children. Vulnerable people in general. Kicking someone while they're down. Making the path harder for somebody than it already is. Seeing someone moving towards hope and wholeness and making their way towards Jesus and his community and then finding some way to just shut them down and turn them away. That is worse than the worst thing you can think of. And this is the hyperbole that Jesus is using. He is condemning any form of, of social class bias in his day. This is not just a happy, pithy little verse about, about being like a happy child. This is a, a confrontation of the greatest kind on the societal structures of that day and the ways in which they were hurting people and Jesus telling him, and my people will not take part in this. The followers of Jesus will reject this type of thinking. A couple stories. Uh, a, couple, uh, a couple weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, we had the, the president of the, of the Christian Missionary Alliance here, John Stumbo, and he, um, and he talked and he told a brief story about the... the the founding of the, the Christian Missionary Alliance and how it was founded, a guy named A.B. Simpson was hired at a, uh, he's fresh out, of, um, fresh out of seminary, hired at a, um, a really fancy hoity-toity um, church in New York City and given a hefty salary and, and he's like, sweet, let's do this. And so he's preaching and then like there's, there's in, these, in these old churches, there was like this hierarchy. There's these seats in the front that are for the, for the rich elite. And as you move back farther and farther, you, you get less classy and then you get to the top and all the way in the far back, you'll see the poorest of the poor um, back there. But all in all, even the poorest of the poor were probably richer in that city than a lot of other people in the city. So A.B. Simpson gets hired to be the pastor of this church. And the first thing he does on week one is he goes down to the docks in New York City and he starts uh, ministering to the immigrants there and, and helping them find places to live and, and, and helping them find places to get educated. He starts bringing them to church and they start coming. And, and more and more and more of them are, are piling into this church and, and they're not privy to all the, all the big, uh, all the, all the, communal social constructs of the church and so they're sitting in the front so they can see and hear and they're, they're spreading around their kids are playing with the other kids and, and, and the rich people in the church are not having it and they're saying how dare you these kids are playing with our kids that is, that is not how we live in this town in this city and in this church if you want to bring those kind of people to church um, you're going to have to take them somewhere else and he goes okay and he quits and he takes them down the road and he purchases another building with the money that he had made there, and he starts a new church, a church made up of poor, impoverished immigrants from all over the world, most of which whom probably didn't even speak the same language. And they set up in like a half circle, as, as round as they could get it, and, and they purposely declared that there is no hierarchy here. Everyone is equal in this place. Now, it wasn't perfect, and it still isn't. However, that is one of the most godly things that I hear. People pushing back against the places where Christians have bought in to the kingdoms of this world and how they function. What they are telling you is great is not great. What they are telling you is bad and, and, and the direction you don't want to go tends to be the exact direction that Jesus is telling his people to go. 
That's how it tends to be. I had a conversation last year with my, my father came to visit, and we were sitting on my porch, and I realized that um, he was talking about his high school, and I asked him, what year did you go to high school? And he's like, late 60s, early 70s. And I said, oh, you were there during desegregation? He says, yes, I was. And I said, tell me about that. What was that like? Um, and he says, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a difficult time. Everyone hated each other, and everyone was fighting, and nobody could find common ground. Nobody could find peace, and people were being treated terribly. He says, when they passed the law um, that schools could no longer be segregated, he said, my, he said I was in public school, and, and these black children started coming to our class, and, and on day one, all my white friends were gone. They were missing, and I didn't know where they went, and they were back on day two, and they weren't back on day three. And I went back home. He's probably 13 years old. I went back home to my dad and I said, Dad, uh, my grandfather, Preston Peak Phillips Jr., he was a professor uh, of theology. And he, um, he said, oh, all your friends have been pulled out of the school. He's like, why? Where'd they go? He's like, well, all of the churches have started Protestant private schools. When? This year. Why? They don't want their children intermingling with black children. I had no idea that this is how Christian schools got started. And it made me go back and check all the Christian schools I've attended when they were all started. Early 70s, late 60s. Um, There was really no private Protestant schools. There was Catholic schools. There were private Catholic schools. But private Protestant schools, there was only like a couple, two or three. And they grew massively in numbers over those few years. Just a few years, they grew and grew and grew because American Christians did not want their kids intermingling with people that they thought were lower than them in society. And so Jesus comes along and he says, hey, hey, let's play a game. What's the worst thing that you can imagine? What is the worst thing that you can imagine doing to another human being? Name some stuff, name some stuff, yeah, yeah? Uh, Okay, I can imagine something far worse. The feeling of shock that would have come over the the disciples and everyone listening would have been incredibly heavy. He says, how dare you sit around and argue about who's the greatest? You should be trying to figure out who is the least in your eyes and dropping down to their level as fast as you possibly can to get below them so that they don't have to feel that. And then we go a little farther. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fires of hell. So two references here. You have one to being born uh, maimed and crippled and you have another one here being born blind or half blind. Um, and now it sort of dawns on us, oh, these are people who would, it would have been very dangerous for them to be born into the world that way. He's not talking about becoming blind or crippled. He's talking about being born that way. Because we've just talked about children and how they're treated in the world. He's saying, it is better for you to be born at the very bottom of society than to treat people as if they are at the bottom of society. That is far worse. That is far worse. In fact, the, um, the line right there about um, the eye, putting your, your eye out, this is actually a reference to 1 Samuel 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 12, where 
um, the men of Israel were captured by a king and he has their eyes plucked out as a form of shame. Okay? Not just torture. Shame was a far worse form of torture in those days. And so it was a shaming of these people, plucking their eyes out. Now they're blind. Now they'll depend on everyone else for the rest of their life. And, and, and it's their way of sort of degrading humanity. And Jesus says, it's better for you, for you to be fully degraded and to be born actually that way as a child in all the dangers of the Roman Empire um, than it is for you to treat people that way. That is what is far worse. In the commentary uh, that William Barclay wrote on Matthew um, chapter 18, he says this, this is Jesus urging all followers of Jesus that it might sometimes be necessary to suffer dishonor in service of the peace, in service of the peace of the community that would be radically disturbed by dishonoring another person. If at any point you find yourself in a position that requires you to dishonor another human being, he says, what Jesus is telling you here is it's, it's far better for you to dishonor yourself than them. To humble yourself in front of everyone than for you ever to treat them this way. If Jesus is king of the entire world, the living king of the world right now, why are we settling for all these debates about societies and status and symbols and identity, and citizenship of earthly kingdoms, and walls, all of it. Jesus is saying, I, I am the king, I am the Messiah. All of this comes after a proclamation that he is the king of all. And he says, if I am king in my kingdom, the worst thing that you can do is to make it harder on people for whom it is already hard. Richard, Richard Foster says, whenever there is trouble over who is the greatest, there is trouble over who is the least. Most of us know that we will never be the greatest. Just don't let us be the least. That tends to be how we feel. And then the Apostle Paul writes about how, and Jesus, sitting at the top on the throne, humbled himself and became lowly, even taking on the form of a servant. And he's asking us to follow. I mean, what we do every week with communion here is, oh, our communion servers, you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, communion is us giving ourselves the reminder of what it means to enter into the world as the body of Christ. That you may be broken and poured out. This, the, the death that Jesus suffered was the most shameful way. It's not as terrifying as, as having a millstone around your neck and thrown into the abyss, but it is far more shameful Stripped naked, hung on a cross, a criminal cross for days for everyone to see and walk by and mock and spit on. His beard ripped out. Again, that's straight from the Old Testament where the, the same guy who plucked their eyes out ripped their beards out, shaved their heads and shaved their beards as a symbol of shame. Everything that the cross represents was intended to make Jesus look like the lowest of the lowest of the law. And Jesus says, but this is how it's done. This is how salvation enters into the world. Christianity is not a race to the top. It is, it is a race to put Jesus on the top, and it's a race to the bottom. And it's not just a race to the bottom so that you can get there and say, I'm at the bottom. It's a race to the bottom for a reason. Because your brothers and your sisters are already down there. And if you see them and they're at the bottom, you should be rushing down there and getting below them so you can say, you're not at the bottom. Don't worry, you're not at the bottom. And lifting them up. When the scriptures say, humble yourself on the side of the Lord, it's literally humble yourself. So that Jesus can lift you up. 
Let him do the work, not you. None of this is about us and our social status and about our rights and about our um, greatness. We lift up Jesus as the greatest and all of us are equal. All have sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. We sit at the table with our king. Communion is a symbol of that. The, the body of Christ was broken for you so that you could find an heir, heirship to the king. Um, the, the blood of Christ was spilled for you. There is no upper rungs. There is no bottom rungs. We are all equals in the kingdom. So let's spend some time in prayer, shall we? I want you to contemplate and ponder the ways in which you have been treating people as others. Um, maybe some repentance needs to happen. If you need some prayer, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room in there. There should be somebody there to pray with you. Um, take time, confess to each other, pray together. Um, let's take communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, guide our time together in communion. Help us to view you fully and completely as you are. Help us to view ourselves fully and completely as we are. Help us to view the people around us fully and completely as they are. The children of God created in God's image to do God's work here. Our brothers and sisters. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.